everyone, welcome to the Outpost Community Church Podcast. My name is Natalie, and I'm excited to introduce this week's message from our Who is Jesus series. We hope you enjoy listening and have a wonderful week of worship. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Greg Brooks. I'm the pastor of Outpost Community Church. This podcast is being especially recorded because when it was delivered on March 24th of 2023, uh, the recording did not happen. So we're re-recording it in this way. So it'll sound a little different than a typical Sunday sermon, but nevertheless, same content. And we pray that it's going to bless you, encourage you, strengthen you as a follower of Jesus And uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're listening in, maybe give you some clarity about what Jesus came to do. So as we get started, let me start with an image, something you can consider. Do you think that you would be able to tell me the difference between a decorated Christmas tree and a tree that was sitting in a parking lot uh, that's covered in trash from the wind blowing it all up onto it? Could you tell the difference between the two? Absolutely, you could. You could tell one's got ornaments that have all been cleverly placed with lights all around it. And the other one, it's just got Snickers wrappers and trash bags and and garbage. And the lights are just, maybe it doesn't even have lights on it, right? You could tell the difference between something that's intentionally created and something is not. That's the point. Now, I want you to imagine that on Christmas Eve, I came to your house and I came in and you welcomed me in and First thing I did was walked up to your Christmas tree. I threw it on the ground, stomped on the ornaments, pulled out the lights, kicked the Christmas presents. What do you think you would feel in that moment? Well, if I was to take a guess, I'm pretty sure you would feel pretty upset, pretty angry. You would probably scream at me, say something like, what are you doing? Because I was taking your intentionally created thing and I was pushing it over and stomping on it. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because today as we go through this series, who is Jesus? We're going to look at the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in spite of us being his intentionally created beings who have pushed aside his good ways and stomped on his laws to create something totally different, something that is filled with destruction. Now, in this series, we started by looking at the Bible. And it's the book that teaches us everything about Christianity. And we discovered in that message that regardless of whether you believe the content of this book, it is an historically accurate representation of the original writings. You can trust it at least that far. And after that, we looked at the triune God of the Bible. He is the beginning and the end. He's the creator and stainer of everything. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's three in one. And he is good, and his glory knows no end. Last week, we looked at Jesus himself, that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. He was fully God and fully man when he came to earth, and he wasn't a created person like you and I. He is God in the flesh, eternal from eternity past to eternity future. And he lived on earth just like us. Today And so today, like I said, we're looking at what that Jesus came to accomplish according to that Bible that we can trust. And that good news is that even though we have pushed aside his intentionally created world, we stomped on his good ways, he has created a way out. He has created a pathway to something so much better out of this broken and corrupt world. 
Now, why do we need this message? Well, maybe it's obvious. We need it because we live in a moral landscape. We live in a world of rights and wrongs. And we all recognize in a year right now that's a presidential year, year of politics, that this world is corrupt and it's broken. And the wiser men and women among us know that the brokenness isn't just out there in the world. It's right here in our hearts with me and you. That's where it starts. There is a darkness in me, an evil in me, a brokenness in me. We need this message because we need to know how this brokenness inside of us gets fixed. Now, we also need this message because we live in a religious landscape. Uh, I would say it's, uh, the religious landscape is a landscape of fixes. Whether our religion has a God with a name on it or not, we all follow some pathway or series of commandments of some sort. And then we, in all of these pathways, these religions, these works-based things, uh, they tell us that if we follow what they do, in the end, it will turn out all right. Whether it's our jobs or Mormonism or Islam or your family's expectation or what your mother-in-law thinks about you. Now, we need this message because the root of all of these religious activities is a works-based, you get if you do framework. And we need this message because that is not what, the biblical, uh, what biblical Christianity teaches. If I could be so bold, I would say that all of these other things are false fixes except for the gospel. Now, that's a bold statement. And if you're a Christian listening, you agree. If you're not, follow with me. We're going to go through three things from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And here's what they're going to be. Number one, we're going to talk about that we are dead and our trespasses and sins. Number two, how we've been made alive with Jesus. And number three, how we've been made alive is that we've been saved by grace for good works. So let's start at the very beginning, dead in our trespasses and sins, okay? Now, I want to give you an image before I read this. My mother grew up, spent a year on an island called Truck Island. It's about a four-hour flight from Hawaii out in the Pacific Ocean. And this island was used in World War II, and, and it actually contains landmines and mines on the, underwater in the coast. And uh, I was corrected by my mother on this. There was no signs, but I want you to imagine there was parts of the island she was not allowed to go to because there were landmines. She knew, she was warned, don't go to that. And I want you to imagine there were signs that said, do not go over here, landmines, danger, big, bold letters, exclamation points. Don't trespass to this part of the island. Now, I want to read to you Ephesians 2, verse 1, and part of verse 2 with this context in mind. This is what it says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, this is in the past tense. So talking about sin, death, trespasses in the church may make some of you twitch, but let me define it for you so that you can really understand what scripture says here. Trespasses is just like what it sounds like. It's going where you should not go. It's crossing over into a place that you should not be. And God's commands, his commandments or moral laws are like signs that say, hey, beware of landmines. Don't go this way. It's not good. They aren't there to keep you from treasures and pleasures. They're there to protect you from sin and death, from pain. Now, what is sin? Well, sin is any failure to live according to the moral law of God in our actions and in our attitudes. Actions like 
Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit murder. But also attitudes like coveting or an attitude of envy and jealousy, something that comes from the heart. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount teaches that, uh, that or he connects all moral decisions to heart postures, heart attitudes, and basically teaches us that we are by nature sinners. It's something that starts deep within us. So what happens when someone sins? Well, when someone sins, what they're doing is they're ignoring God's signs and trespassing into fields filled with landmines. You're going to a dangerous place. And the Bible teaches us that we're going into death. The Bible communicates that spiritual death and physical death are a direct result of ignoring God's signs, meaning that before sin came into the picture, death did not exist. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. So what would possess someone to trespass, to leave innocence in life, to go into a field of death? Why would you do it? Especially when you've been warned, you've been told, hey, don't go over here. Like, I don't know about you, but if you and I are doing some hiking and we're hanging out and we come across a field and there's a sign at the gate that says, beware landmines, I'm not going in with you. That's crazy. So why trespass? Why ignore the sign from God? This is a really important question. In this series, I've been comparing and contrasting biblical Christianity with Mormonism. And we can contrast these because it's culturally relevant for where we live, because we live in a community that has a lot of Mormonism in it. We have a lot of friends who are Mormons, and there could be some confusion. How is, is Christianity Mormonism? Is Mormonism Christianity? There's a lot of language that can make it muddied. Now, I use contrast, and we're contrasting these two things because it's a powerful teaching tool, because it sets up one idea next to another, providing a better view of that idea. It's like looking at paint swatches. Sometimes it's easier to see what a color really is when you put other colors next to it. So let me look at Mormonism real quick with you. And let's look at why is there trespass? Why is there sin in the world? Why would you cross over into that? Mormonism has something to say about that. And so here's what I want to start with. We've talked about this in the series already. God had a plan of happiness is what the Mormon teaching teaches. There's a plan of happiness. And this plan of happiness spans across a pre-mortal life, a mortal life, and a post-mortal life. Right now, you and I, if you're listening to this, are living in the mortal life. And the mortal life, in this mortal life, we're given moral agency. And what they mean by that is what we Christians call free will, the ability to choose between right and wrong. Okay, we agree with that. Then, according to LDS.org, quote, how you use your moral agency will shape your experience in this life and in the world to come, end quote. And then in 2 Nephi 9, as well as Doctrine of the Covenants, uh, it says this, quote, resurrection will be followed by the final judgment, where God will judge us according to our desires and our obedience to the commandments, to the warning signs, end quote. Okay, and so uh, what this is saying to us basically sounds the same as Christianity. You go, yes, we have free will. We could choose between right and wrong. The w- How we use that free will is going to impact our life in this world and in the world to come. There's going to be a judgment. And in that judgment, we're going to be judged for what we have done. That's all uh, very close to the biblical teaching. But here comes the next bit. And this is tied to what we're going through in Ephesians 2. Why would you trespass? Why would you go into this? Well, according to uh, Latter-day Saint theology, the fall or sin was a part of God's plan of happiness. It's all a part of the plan. In fact, they have an article on their website called Benefits of the Fall. And in it, quote, they say, quote, 
the fall is an integral part of the heavenly father's plan of salvation. What do you mean by that? In addition to introducing physical and spiritual death, it gave us the opportunity to be born on earth and to learn and to progress. If Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the garden of Eden. And that sounds like a good thing, but let me continue to read this quote. And all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created. And they must have remained forever and had no end, end quote. But then this is what they continue to say, quote, and Adam and Eve would have had no children. Listen, if it wasn't for sin, children would not be possible. Let me keep reading. Wherefore, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin. But behold, all things have been done in the wisdom of him who knoweth all things. Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they may have joy. So they're saying the fall created the opportunity for joy. The fall in doing something bad created the opportunity to do something good. Now, I want to now quote to you uh, from the book of Moses, chapter 5. And so in this, it says, quote, Adam and Eve expressed their gratitude for the blessings that came as a result of the fall. And then it says, Adam blessed God and was filled and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth, saying, blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression, my eyes are opened. And in this life, I shall have joy. And again, in the flesh, I shall see God. And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed or children, and never should have known good and evil, and the joy of our redemption, and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. Moses 5, 10 through 11. What this communicates is that the reason Adam and Eve sinned is because God wanted them to. That's simply it. It was his plan. Not as in he took it into consideration and he incorporated it into his plan knowing that we would do it. No, it was the intention. And joy, children, and the ministry of Jesus wouldn't have happened unless we sin. Now, if God's plan is for us to sin, can he judge us for sinning? The answer is no. If God's plan is for us to sin and experience all the pain that comes as a result of that sin, including death, can God be good? The answer is no. In contrast to this, uh, God created the first, uh, this is the Christian contrast, biblical Christian contrast. God created the first two human beings in the garden, absolutely. And he did give them one rule, which created from that rule, moral agency, the ability to choose between right is wrong. Uh, most importantly, that to be able to uh, choose to love God by our own free will and choice. And God gave them this role and told them the danger of disobeying it because not because he wanted them to cross that line, but because he didn't want them to break it. God doesn't want you to get blown up, so to speak. He doesn't want you to cross into the minefield. That's not God's desire for humanity. He doesn't want us to experience pain, misery, and death. So let's get back to the question. So why did humanity trespass? Why would, what would cause them to walk past that sign? Well, there's two reasons. Number one is temptation. Number two is desire. And we see this in Ephesians 2. 
If you want to tempt someone to walk into a minefield, there's a good way to do it. A great way to do it is to appeal to their desires and then tell them that there's no danger there to begin with, right? Tell them that the signs that say, hey, danger, minefield are really just scarecrows. It's just the owner of the field doesn't want you to come into his field. He knows he's got good things. He doesn't want you to be there. So he put up the sign to prevent anybody from coming in. So basically call into question the integrity of the field owner and then it creates the ability or the temptation to go in to trespass past it. Now, that doesn't work if there's no desire to go into the field. So there has to be a desire. Eve is going to have to want to go and trespass this line. And so this is exactly what happens in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 with the fall. Satan sets a temptation by calling into, calling into question the integrity of God. He says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Genesis three, four, and five. So the temptation is set. Hey, God's just trying to hold you back. He doesn't want you to have what he has. He's trying to keep you out of his field and out of his produce. But this only works if there is a desire to go into the field. And we read in verse six, that's exactly what Adam and Eve have. So when the woman saw that there, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so in this way, humanity began what Paul says next in Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins of which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself, the spirit that is now at work at the son, in the sons of disobedience. Eve followed Satan, Adam followed Eve, and we, human beings, the children of Adam and Eve, have all joined in to following this, this evil pathway. And Paul continues in verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So why did we trespass sin? Because we wanted to. We wanted to. The temptation was set. We had a desire. We knew it was contrary to loving God, and we took it. That's exactly how sin came in. There's no one to blame but us. Not Adam and Eve, not Satan, surely not God. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 13 and 15 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Friends, the wage of trespasses and sins is death. It's a minefield. The wage of, is personal, it's collateral, and it's eternal. How is it personal? It's personal because uh, of our own personal death. We're going to experience the pain of our sin personally. However that might happen, we're going to face it. It's not what God planned. It's not what he wanted for you, but it's how it is because of your choice and my choice. We will die because we have sinned. It's the wage that we've earned. But this wage is also collateral. How is it collateral? It's collateral because our sin doesn't just affect us. It always has a ripple effect, a blast radius to it. Speaking of bombs, uh, a friend of mine served in Vietnam. And when he was in Vietnam, he was sent home because he was blown up by a bomb. One of the men uh, in his troop or his platoon was, they were walking to check out a building and he tripped over a tripwire and ended up blowing up him, 
uh, some of his companions and killed some of the people in his troop. He was able to get away, but that blast had a blast radius, even though it was one man who tripped the wire. It's the same with our sin. It may be you who trips that wire and it's not an accident. Sin is something we choose to do. It's by our desire and it always affects others. But it also is, it's not just personal and collateral. It's also eternal. How is the wage eternal? Well, Paul reminds us that we were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Wrath is commonly understood to describe the judgment that God has for sinners. The Bible explains that God will and must recompense men according to their sins. It's not good to say that our sins aren't that big of a deal or to say that our good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. That's not how justice works. Or to say that it was God's plan for us to sin, so we can't be faulted. We can't say that. It's not what the Bible teaches. If we do any of that, we minimize the pain felt around the world because of human sin. You can't tell mothers of Israeli or Palestinian children that it's no big deal that their kids were killed. There must be justice. And we humans are not good at determining the proper amount. Well, I'll admit to that. But God is. He was, as Christians, we say he was going to pour out his just wrath on our sin, upon our heads for eternity. And, and, and so here's the thing. Some people say, like, isn't wrath a bit much? Isn't wrath a bit much? Because for us Christians, we say, man, that wrath has been covered. But for those who do not believe in Jesus, that wrath is still current. It's on you. It's coming for you. But you go, man, isn't wrath a bit much? It seems a little extreme. Well, let me tell you this. I'm a father. Maybe you're a father or a mother, but maybe you can at least understand what I'm going to say here. As a father, I have a real strong love for my children. And that love uh, brings about a special type of wrath in me. Let me give you an example. If you came and you harmed my daughter or you threatened my daughter, don't you think that that would stir up in me a type of wrath that is unique to fathers and mothers? Absolutely. Well, you have to understand that your heavenly father loves you and loves those you have harmed with your sin with a white, hot, passionate love. And when we destroy ourselves and we destroy this world that God has intentionally created, pushing it over and stomping on his good ways, there is a white hot wrath ready for us. And few things I think display wrath or you know, communicate the image of wrath like a bomb. A bomb is just white, hot, fiery wrath. And it says that this is going to be something that we experience for eternity. This is the state that we are in. We have our foot on the landmine. And we're going to blow. This is the state that every human being is in. That's the bad news. But there is some good news and Ephesians 2 brings it. Jesus came to make us alive. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what has Jesus done? Well, he's given us a crazy offer. And that offer is to make us alive, to raise us, and to seat us with him in the heavenly places, which is insane. 
Now, the question is, how did he do it? Well, how did he do it? Or not how did he do it? Why did he do it? Why did he do it? He did it because uh, God is rich in mercy. He has great love for us. He's immeasurably rich in grace and in kindness. What do those mean? Well, love goes beyond mere feelings or emotions. It is a selfless and sacrificial commitment to the well-being of others. And that's how God is with us. In the biblical context, love is often associated with the Greek word agape, which signifies a selfless, unconditional, sacrificial, divine love. And that love motivates a mercy. What is mercy? The biblical definition of mercy involves God's compassionate and forgiving nature, which is extended to humanity despite our shortcomings and our sins. But it also says he's gracious. Gracious Grace is just unmerited favor, meaning you didn't do anything and he's going to give you favor and even though you didn't do anything to earn it. And then kindness, kindness is described as, is, describes God's continual goodness towards us. Now, his love, his mercy, his grace, and his kindness are extended to us. Because, and so because of God's love for us sinners, he offers us three things. Crazy offer. Number one is to make us alive with Jesus. Now, how did God make us alive with Jesus? Did he just ignore all of our sin and pretend it didn't exist? No. Physical and spiritual death exist as a consequence of our sin. So Jesus being fully man and fully God, meaning he is like us, but he is unlike us in that he's without sin, took the white hot wrath of our trespasses, our bombs upon himself. The Bible says that we, that they were imputed into him instead of into us. Now, if this is true, that means that the justice that we deserved has been satisfied. It's been exhausted in Jesus. And if it's been exhausted, we are no longer guilty before God. So he wants us to make us alive in Christ. Number two, he wants to raise us with Christ is what Jesus says. Jesus was morally perfect. So his death was completely unjust. He did not deserve to die. There was no wage of sin in his life. And the proof is in the fact that uh, or it can be seen in the fact that he was, that God raised him from the dead in his resurrection. Jesus proved his purity when he walked out of the grave. And in the same way, we who are saved by his mercy and grace will do exactly the same. We will experience a resurrection. We will be raised with Christ. And number three, he says he will seat us with Christ in the heavenly places. I love this because when I was in high school, I uh, ended up getting kicked out of a military school and going to a new school in a different state. The new school had 3,000 students, so I went from a school of 600 to a school of 3,000, so I didn't really know anybody. There's multiple lunches, and if anybody's you know, ever been in high school and been in a big school, the lunchroom can be a place of anxiety when you don't know anybody. And so it's a place of anxiety because you don't know where to sit. Who do I sit with? And so for a semester there, it was really tough. I didn't know where to sit. It's very packed. You know, who do I sit with? I'm trying not to listen into your conversation because I don't know you, blah, blah, blah. But then things changed for me when the wrestling season came. Because when I joined the wrestling team, all of a sudden I had buddies, the wrestling team. And so when I went to lunch, guess who I sat with? I sat with the wrestling team. Those were my guys. We could have conversation. We could sit together. I was welcomed. I belong. Guys, that is the incredible offer that God is making to us. He's looking at us and saying, I want you to sit with me at my table. You're my guy. I want you to be my daughter. I want you to be my son. Come sit with me at my table. 
Now, that's awesome. Be made in li- alive with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. But who gets access to this mercy and love and grace and kindness? Who will be made alive and raised and seated with Jesus? Who will be free from the white hot wrath of God for their sin? Who's going to get all this? Now, traditionally, maybe you've heard that it's those who have been good, done a lot of good things. But this leads us to our third point, and that's not true. We are saved by grace for good works. We're not saved from good works. Listen, all the religions of the world, I've heard it said like this, are kind of like a mountain. Everybody sees it's like, maybe it's like a mountain. There's a lot. And what you got to do is you got to work your way up the mountain. You got to climb that mountain through good deeds. And every religion around the world is just different ways to get to the top of the mountain. But we're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to be good people, do good things, accomplish good works. And if, and if everybody just works really hard, we can get to the top of the mountain. We'll, we'll, we'll achieve nirvana or enlightenment or heaven or whatever it may be. Okay. It's the mountain of work. But Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say it is not like that at all. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Friends, salvation, getting to the top of the mountain is not something that we work towards. It is something that a perfect God at the top of the mountain comes down to our level and graciously gives to us through the sacrificial life of Jesus. It is a gift, not a wage. And we all know the difference. If you come and work for me and we agree that we're going to pay you $16 an hour, right? You work 10 hours, we're going to give you 160 bucks. The government's going to take their piece too, right? But if it's a gift, if I say, hey, listen, I want to give you $160. You go, why? Because I want to. All you have to do is go, okay, and take that check, take that cash from my hand. That's a gift. You didn't do anything. I just, out of the love and desire of my heart, I want to give this to you. That's the difference between a gift and a wage. We know that. And Jesus wants to give us salvation. Listen, there's a lot of false ideas about how to be saved. And they usually are split between if versus for. Let me tell you this. Number one is that we receive salvation if we work. That's that mountain of work we were talking about. If you do a lot of work, you'll be saved. You'll earn it. You'll get get salvation as a wage. That's not what the Bible teaches. Number two, another false idea is that we, we receive salvation by grace if we maintain it with work. That's not how that works either. You can't lose your salvation. You never earned it to begin with. You, your good works don't maintain it either. And then there's another false idea about salvation. This is the third one, which is it's received by, we receive salvation by grace. And that we, well, let me say it like this. We receive salvation by grace that makes up for the lack of work in us. This is what uh, LDS theology believes. According to LDS.org, quote, when we do all we can to exercise faith in him, repent, and keep our covenants, He will make up the difference and strengthen us along the way. Hey, the only problem with that is what the Bible says. Romans 3, 27 through 28 says, then what comes of our boasting? It is excluded. What does that mean? It means that you have nothing to boast about. But what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 11, 6 says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Well, you go, well, what about works? A Mormon apologist will quote Jesus from Matthew 5, 48 and say, where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Saying, you see, you must be perfect. You've got to be morally perfect to be saved. But the problem with that is what Hebrews ten fourteen says, for by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus does the moral perfecting. So then you go, well, then what is the point of works? Why do we have works? Well, the false idea is that you're going to be saved or you're going to receive it by grace if you work. The truth is you receive salvation by grace through faith for good works. It's a difference of if versus for. I wasn't saved if I did good things. I'm saved so I could do good things. Listen to verse 10, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does this mean? It means that we work from salvation, not for salvation. We have been saved by grace through faith as a gift from God because of his great love for us. And now in love for him, we work not to appease him, but to please him who we love. A friend of mine says it like this. God turns our have to's into our want to's. I don't do good because I have to. I do it because Jesus loved me so much and his love compels me. I don't go to church services because I have to. I go because I get to and I want to. I don't teach the Bible because I have to. I do it because I want to. I don't serve because I have to. I serve because I want to. I don't give because I have to. I give generously because I want to. And even when I don't want to do all these things, I know God's mercy remains in my life. For I am his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. What does this mean? It's kind of like God is saying, I have put pavers in front of you that I want you to walk on, but they're not leading you to salvation. They're leading you from salvation in the way of sanctification, in the way of growth towards heaven. Listen, friends, I am not a dead sinner making up for my mistakes. I am a living sinner making the best use of my new life with Jesus. I want to invite you to do something. If you've never been to the Outpost Community Church website, go on to that website. And if you, you go and you navigate on there, you're going to find some Outpost stories. And in those Outpost stories, there's about 21 of them. And it's just stories of people like you and like me, men and women who are no longer under condemnation for their sin because at a point in that they came to a point in their life where they believed in Jesus and they received the gift of salvation from Jesus as a free gift. Not because they attended church, not because they got their stuff in order, not because they were so good and buttoned up and better than you and me. They received that gift because they believed in faith in who Jesus is. And for them, this whole passage in Ephesians 2 is in the past tense. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, but now they're alive. They were following Satan, but now they're following Jesus. They were dead. They are alive. And friends, I want you to go read those stories because I want you to see that if you think your sin is too much and, and, or maybe God's not good enough and his grace can't cover it, I just want you to know it's just a lie that Satan's telling you. 
It's a false sign. You don't need to believe it. God's grace covers all sin. And so you got to ask yourself, how do I get a story like theirs? How do, I, how do I get saved? How do I get to the top of the mountain? Well, Paul tells us, God tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, he says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, remember, that means that he's morally perfect and he accomplished the full atonement for your sin. If you believe he did that, it's what it says, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, the reason that I worship, the reason that the church worships is because not because we've been so good and we're worshiping ourselves, we're worshiping God because he's been so good to us. And so that is the, the reason for the holiday season. It's the reason for every worship song in every season. And it is the great clarifying difference between Christianity and every other religion and pathway in the world. God has done something that we call the gospel. It's the great good news that though even, we, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God is here to make us alive through Jesus, through his atoning death on the cross for us. That's why Jesus came at Christmas, and that's why we worship him. Friends, if this message encouraged you, we'd love to hear from you about that. If you have any questions about uh, anything that was said here, feel free to email us at office at outpostcommunitychurch.org. We'd love to respond. We pray this would be a blessing to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.